0: this episode is brought to you by the importance of judging a book by its cover the importance of judging a book by its cover wants you to understand the value of superficially critiquing literature based on its binding and illumination we all know that a high quality fantasy illustration on the cover of a novel signals the quality of storytelling inside If a publisher doesn't feel confident enough to plunk down a massive stack of coin, even more than they can afford, in front of a genius illustrator or a hot new artist, well, that tells you everything you need to know about what they know about how enjoyable the reading experience will be. And now, when our listeners check out the website of the importance of judging a book by its cover, they can get an elaborate lower back tattoo to demonstrate the quality of their inner character. Just use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, The Importance of Judging a Book by Its Cover, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Welcome to the Rereading Wolf podcast with Craig Brewer and James Wynn. This is a special episode that we really recommend you head over to YouTube to check out. Links are in the show notes, or just search for Rereading Wolf Podcast on YouTube.
1: Well, greetings! Today, we are talking to Don Mates. Don Mates, the famous illustrator who created all those fantastic covers for the original Book of the New Sun volumes. Uh, Also, the Book of the New Sun omnibus which I have a poster of that sitting right above me at this moment. Also, the timescape Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. So we're going to take this opportunity to kind of talk to him, find out how he got involved in that project, how he got started as an illustrator and an artist, and how he developed those pictures that we all love so much. How are you doing, Don? I'm fine.
0: It's wonderful to, to audio meet you. (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) we're gonna make a video version of this so that we can show the images that we'll talk about as we go through so if you're listening to this just on the the regular feed we'll have a link on the show notes of where you can see everything we're talking about in lots of good detail
1: yeah i strongly recommend that you check out the the youtube just get off of this and go to the youtube channel and check it out but if you don't don has agreed to to put the pictures that we talk about Onto the Podbean site, and there'll also be a link to that in the show notes. If for some reason you can't access the YouTube, okay. So let's talk about the uh, the pictures, right? You got started on the project working for uh, David Hartwell. You're really young. You're only out of art school like four years, right?
2: Yes. To back up before that, I started doing comics at a very early age. I mean, you know, I was very young and uh, my parents realized that, you know, if they gave me a pencil and a piece of paper, I was, I would entertain myself and they liked that a lot. And I found out oh, when I was like 13 that I'm actually deaf in one ear. Hmm. And that kind of made it so that uh, I was more visually oriented. You know, sports really didn't do much for me because, you know, I'd, they'd go, hey, Don, catch this, you know, and I'd go, huh? So it just didn't work very well. And I really got hooked into comic books because I really <laughs> liked the idea of reading and seeing pictures at the same time. It It, it just got my juices flowing to read the word balloons and the encapsulations and then see the the drawings that augmented that. And so that was my basic background. And it kind of carried me through my entire career because words and pictures are what I've been all about for 40 years. On the back of comic books, there used to be a picture of Norman Rockwell, who was touting the famous artist correspondence course. And he'd said, if you can draw Bambi and this pirate, we can make you an artist.
1: I still remember those.
2: (laughs) Well, I I said, well, I can do Bambi and a pirate, no sweat. And where do you see my Batman, you know? And so I enrolled and my parents allowed me to um, pursue this. And I was like 13 years old. So I got an opportunity to have high quality professionals give me instruction through a correspondence course and do artwork that was way above my pay grade at the time. And it gave me a heads up and a a leg up by the time I went to art school. So when I graduated art school, I was uh, head and shoulders above your average person because I had background that a lot of other artists didn't pursue.
1: I am so amazed that that's not a scam because that's literally what I believed that was. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. No, I don't care what I draw. They're going to they're gonna say, yes, here, here, give us your money and we're going to pretend to teach you. But you're saying that really, really helped.
2: Well, it's like this, you know, you are right. You know, they sent someone at, you know, they sent someone to my parents' house and because I submitted, they sent somebody there. It's like, you know, anybody that sent anything in, they were going to jump on it because there was a live one on the hook. But the fact that I was one of The few that responded to it and my parents allowed me to do it and they said, you know, even though he's only 13 years old, we think he's got some talent here, you know, and the idea that, you know, I was being injected something creative and visual at an age where most people aren't that. Dedicated, and I drew like all the time. I mean, you know, my high school teachers were like, I-, I got really good grades, but it was all around drawing Spider-Man, Batman, and and all the superheroes on the edges of the homework assignments. I remember I was, you know, I, I could feel the education starting to slip over my head. And the guidance counselor I had said, well, look, it, you're in the top 10% of your class. You need to go to a college. You know, you can major in art, but at least you'll have a degree to fall back on. And I looked at the various colleges that were within my area and within my budget, and I saw what was on the walls there. I even took an evening figure drawing class at something called the University of Hartford. And I looked at what they expected from the students and what the students were producing by virtue of what I saw there. And I said, this isn't for me, you know, it was sort of pseudo impressionistic, realistic, something or other on the walls. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to learn how to draw. I wanted anatomy lessons. I wanted, you know, I wanted Mm -hmm. some skills, you know, I didn't want to just kind of (laughs) flop paint around. And uh, so I, I ended up going to an art school and it just felt right. And it was called the Pear school of art and it was a non-accredited school, so I didn't get a degree. So my guidance counselor was probably rolling over and rolling his eyes, but in 40 years, I only had one person ask me what my degree was, and that was because I volunteered to teach for a year to fill in for a teacher that took a year leave of absence and the vice president of academic affairs you know after I was done teaching I asked him how well did I do he said he did fine I said well would you hire me and he went what's your degree and of course I responded <laughs> 98.6 He he didn't appreciate that too much. But um, anyway, when I left that art school, it was right in the heyday of when Frank Frazetta was producing the artwork that was changing the publishing industry. I mean, they were scrounging for authors to write something like Robert E. Howard so they could expand what the base was for doing heroic fantasy. And Frank couldn't keep up with, you know, what the publishers were demanding because back at that time, there weren't just a few corporations. There were like 20 different publishing houses and they were all trying to jump on the bandwagon and Frank could only do so many. And so when I got out of art school, I had a portfolio because Frank was one of my heroes. I had artwork that was close enough That, you know, it was definitely not Frank who could paint like him anyway, but it was close enough that they said we could put this on a book cover and it might sell. So he opened up a whole industry for people like me coming out of art school that wanted to join into the paperback industry. And so that gave me an opportunity to do book covers at a a relatively young age. So within a couple of years of graduating art school, which I left in 1976, by 1979, I did – I'm double-checking my records here to make sure – I did Island of Dr. Death at the end of 1979. So I was within three years of art school when I started doing Gene Wolfe covers.
1: And that is such a, that's a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. There's no time when these book covers are mentioned that that isn't way up at the top.
2: The thing about Gene Wolfe that was very different for me at the time anyway, was that uh, he was mixing fantasy and science fiction. And it's a tough nut to crack for a book cover because they're eye hooks. For fantasy art, you know, you have your swords and you have your dragons and you have your, you know, like scantily clad women with tigers and all this, you know, and that's put you in the fantasy realm. And then you have, you know, spaceships and technological things and spacesuits and things that put you in the science fiction realm. But Gene was writing both in the same book. So you had to combine those and you had to figure out which one was going to take precedence. Was it more science fiction? Was it more fantasy? And, you know, so he was uh, in one of the The first authors that I was reading that was actually doing that kind of thing, and it made for a a difficult mix visually for book covers because, you know, they wanted to put you in the fantasy rack or the science fiction rack, and Gene was in both racks.
1: I'm just going to describe it, even though people can obviously see it. It's a looks like some some sort of a caveman with a jet pack on his back. He's on a tropical island. There's monkeys sitting around. Is this uh, inspired by any of the stories?
2: Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, you know, Gene wrote a story about some kind of an island that was, the whole island was a psychiatric unit.
1: Oh, yeah, the, island, the death of Dr. Island, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, the, the people that were on the island, were actually being treated and the monkeys were the analysts watching the reactions of what was going on and you know I had this show that it was a science fiction thing so I put a an air hose and a utility tank on the back of this caveman with a spear who just found out that you know he could make fire and meanwhile there are technological lampposts, if you will, in the distance coming up out of the water. So it was an odd mix for a book cover.
1: Right. Now the composition of this, for instance, were you told, okay, the the title is going to go here and the back page is going to go here. So you need to arrange everything.
2: Well, yeah, I had done enough book covers and seen enough book covers to know back then it was, you got to realize it was different back then than it is now. You know, now it's, it's, it's all Completely different. But back then some things were obvious. One was that books would be on a rack and sometimes the bottom part of the book would be hidden by the book below it. So the title and the information needed to be at the top. So you know who the author was, the title of the book and all that. And that's been pretty standard. But back then it was essential. So the artwork was sort of an enhancer for for that. You know, nowadays, you know, you have the art at the top and the type at the bottom, it, it doesn't matter because they're not selling. And the other thing that was different was back then they were actually selling the books from what was called the cover flats, and that's not being done anymore. Back then they would print the book without the cover and the flat sometimes on the in, on back side would have information about the book and they would show those to the distributor buyers and the buyers would actually look at what the cover said and what the blurb said on the back and they would decide from that flat book If they were going to buy it and put it in their stores or not. So literally the covers were selling the books. So this is where, you know, Frank Frazetta was really selling things because they didn't need the book. You know, all they needed was Frank's terrific artwork of these muscular men and half-clad women. And a lot of the distributors back then or the sales buyers were actually truck drivers that made good You know, and so you're literally selling to a truck driver crowd who is buying the books that were going into all the chains and the mom and pops and all that. Yeah, I remember David G. Hartwell
1: saying that sometimes the the illustrator, the cover artist, was making more than the writer of the content inside.
2: There were times, but another thing in the reverse of that was that a lot of times, especially for me, if you couldn't get a Frank Frazetta, you got somebody who could possibly do as decent a job at a fraction of the money. And so they were always looking for the talented artists just coming out of art school that they could undercut someone who's been in the business for for a longer time. <laughs> so it was good for me at the beginning. And then later on, it became a problem because I worked my way up the pay scale till I worked my way out of business. <laughs> And and that's the way that is. You know, another interesting thing about the the book cover and the well, the publishing industry is that years ago, pre Norman Rockwell, okay, and Norman Rockwell was in a heyday. Joseph Leindecker was doing the Arrow Collar Shirt Man and the Saturday Evening Post covers. He did actually more than Norman Rockwell did, and when he was in his heyday, he was getting more fan mail than Rudolph Valentino, the movie actor, was because print was so much more important back when movies were fledgling. And now, you know, we've got gaming and we've got movies and we've got all kinds of stuff that people takes a long time to read when they can watch a movie in two hours or they can play a game, put it down where, you know, reading a book is not the sole entertainment that it used to be. Which means that, you know, Norman Rockwell would used to get like five thousand dollars to do a a Saturday evening post cover. And back then you could buy a car for five (laughs) hundred dollars. So he was really making good money. And today if you do a cover for the equivalent like a Time magazine cover, you got paid (laughs) $5,000 $5,000 <laughs> and so you're looking at what you could buy with the $5,000 in the 1940s and what you can today you can see how oh, wow. you know it's a lot more difficult for artists to make a living particularly mm-hmm. if you're trying to put the detail and information that Norman was putting in to keep that industry alive and present in today's market it's a lot more difficult.
1: What was your first sale that you said okay hey I'm a professional now?
2: Uh, it was It's. it was slippery. <laughs> and the reason I say that was that when I was in art school, I was almost working for the comic book industry. I ghosted for an artist called Jim Aparo who was doing work for DC. He was the the Aquaman artist and he did Batman stories and things and he lived near me and he took me into New York and I met all the comic book artists and I actually had a couple of black and white sort of interior advertisements Published And they were grooming me to be a comic book artist. And I was doing this when I was in art school. And so I was sort of published in the comic book industry before I graduated art school. And then when I got out of art school, I got a couple of jobs doing educational film strips and things like that. But in the fourth year of art school, they invited some artists to come back for a fifth year and sit in on various classes if they wanted to and i sat in on extra figure drawing classes and i would work on uh, my portfolio and show it to the various teachers and get their comments and one of the paintings that i was working on for my portfolio i showed to um it was the flashing swords short story series and frank rosetta did the first two And he stopped doing them. And I happened to have a painting that was very close to one of the stories that was written. And so they bought the painting out of my portfolio to follow up on a series that Frank Frazetta started. So that was pretty heady stuff. And then I remember my first actual manuscript that came to me. It was another situation where they wanted Frank to do these books And a friend of mine who went to art school with me and I was going into New York. We trained into the city and show our portfolio and then compare notes on the way home. And he got two manuscripts to this art director that I saw two weeks before And that art director remembered my portfolio and my student friend said, yeah, I know Donnie. He's, you know, we're, we're on the train together today. He says, okay, well I got these two manuscripts. Frank refused to do why don't you do one and he'll do the other one. And so that became my first commissioned book cover. And so those were two pretty heady experiences. I remember the first time I actually read a manuscript with the intent to do a painting for it. And that was pretty big stuff for me. That's awesome.
0: So I am curious because you do the kind of covers that I still wish we would get more of, which are the, the somewhat surreal, but the very colorful, I mean, I don't want to quite say psychedelic, but some of them really do kind of have with the, the bright colors and the changing colors, especially from some of the ones that I'm looking at here from like the seventies and the eighties. There's one actually that I don't, I don't know how well you remember them in particular, but this one, it's, I just love it called, um, oh shoot. Oh, where'd the, the book title go? Ugh. But it's it's just an astronaut surrounded by a sort of blue, hazy, I don't know, space scape? Catch world. That's it. That's the one, catch world. I love that. I mean, it, when you talk about Frank Frazetta, everybody thinks of the women and the guys, but I always think of the edges and, and how mysterious and strange the edges and the background and the landscapes are. I don't know if this is quite the same, but it has that more, I don't know what you'd call it, impressionistic kind of background that so many things...
2: Back then it was, it was interesting for me because I was starting to get like a lot of work and I had an agent for a time and that was actually a painting that I got through a book cover agency. And the, the story was kind of nebulous, and so I kind of made a nebulous background. And I remember that the background was developed by putting paint down and then dribbling turpentine and, and then lifting it, and then going into the turpentine with the various spatters and things and trying to make it look eerie. And unfortunately, I never got that painting back from the publisher. So it's been one I've been kind of looking for, if you will, you know, because it was something that was stolen from me. And back then, Frank Rosetta changed things because he was saying, I want to get my originals back. And a lot of publishers before that, they would pay like a couple of hundred dollars for a book cover and keep the artwork. And they would give them to their sales people if they did a good job or a lot of times there was a lot of artwork that was literally in dumpsters behind the uh, publishers. And Frank kind of changed that. He said that if I get to keep these things, then I'm going to put more effort into them because it's, it's, it's my artwork you know, and I'm going to keep it. And eventually that changed the laws in New York state so that now it's when you do original art for a cover, you own it. It's not the publisher's property anymore. And for a while there it was. And so, you know, I made a, a a point of every time I delivered a painting, I would try to get it back. And I could tell you stories about seeing people in publishing houses, when they're moving from one floor to another in a building, you would see this person with a cart just loaded with artwork, and it's piled like three feet high, and they're bouncing off the walls with it to get it to the next floor. And it's like, I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, these guys worked so hard on these covers, and they're just slapped together. I mean, art directors didn't have very big rooms and no storage, so this stuff was just piling up. And uh, I remember at Warren Publications where Frank Frazetta did a lot of work and I did too. They had a filing cabinet and they just put paintings on top of the filing cabinet. And when you went there to get your painting back, they would just lift up the corner and yank your painting out. And it would get scratched as they pulled it out. And so eventually it got to the point where the artist said, no more. We're just going to give you transparencies and then you're not going to get the original art. I lost a number of paintings, and back then my agent said, oh, don't cause waves, Don. So they were literally giving my paintings away still. And like I said, the industry has changed quite radically. That's rough.
0: rough. So how much interaction, if any, did you have with the authors when you're doing these? None. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I've heard, yeah. Just about most of the time, it was just handed to you. Like you said, you were given a manuscript and come up with something
2: well it, it wasn't just that um and particularly in the case of david hartwell i was going to something called the world fantasy convention mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that a little later but that's where i met david hartwell because usually i would just work with the art directors and the way it worked back then the art directors would pick the artist And they would hand them a manuscript and the art director would say, well, it's it's about this and we're looking for something like that. But come up with something on your own, if you like, and show us some sketches, you know, and they'd leave you alone. And beyond the art director would be an editor or the editorial staff. And back then, the editor and the art director were the ones that were pretty much guiding what the covers looked like. Uh, eventually, what happened was the sales force got involved, and so the sales force was dictating with the it, – it became part of the mix. And then – Marketing got involved with the mix. They would say, well, look at, you know, dragons are selling this month. So find find a dragon in a story and put that on the cover. And then after that, the accountants got involved. And so you had the art director became less and less a person of authority for the artist. And it became a decision by committee eventually. But when I was doing these covers, I was working with an art director, and when I did the first book for Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, The Shadow of the Torturer, uh, I went off on a tangent and said, ooh, it's about a torturer. I get to do something with a torturer, and I'm thinking, oh boy, Frank Rosetta, I can do something like that. And that's how I got a, a more medieval feel to one of the sketches I did, and David Hartwell was involved in the meeting and I guess he read the story and the art director hadn't. And he said, no, we want more science fiction. So I went and changed the look of the sketches to be more futuristic, which is why I made that really weird tableau for the torturer to be standing on, because you know David Hartwell pushed me in another direction for these books, and i 'm glad he did because the medieval part was sort of an overlay for all the science fiction that was going on,
1: yeah, this is that one with uh, it's it 's kind of reddish orange and there 's like a Uh, edgar Allan poe pendulum swinging back and forth over a woman
2: yes yes very frank frisetta oriented you know i was definitely being frank in that moment and um uh it, it really didn't suit what was going on in the story but i got all hooked up in this character who is a torturer, and, and he's like not just an evil guy, he's really feeling bad that he has to torture this woman who he's falling in love with. So there was a lot of angst going on in that, and I was trying to portray that as a cover, and it, and it just wasn't suiting what the rest of the series or what the rest of that story was about. Um, I have a Gene Wolfe sort of story for you, if you're willing. Yeah, Since this is a Gene Wolfe thing. He was guest of honor at a world fantasy convention. One of those that I mentioned before where all the authors and publishers and everything. And, and he was one of the featured guests. And I had just finished the Citadel of the Autark and I wanted to bring all the paintings to have on display for the publisher, for Gene to see them in their true form and for all the fans that went there to see Gene to see his covers. And back then, you know, 1982, the airlines were a lot laxer on their, their baggage restrictions. So I was able to bring this crate And I still have it. It's 28 inches by 38 inches by 18 inches. And the sucker weighed like 100 pounds. And I put, you know, these Masonite heavily framed paintings in that box along with a bunch of sketches and things. And got on an airplane in Hartford, Connecticut to go to Mm -hmm. Chicago. And there was a, a... it wasn't a direct flight. I had to stop in New York City to catch the connecting flight. And there was a delay in Hartford and the plane didn't get off on time. And when I got to New York, they said, hurry, hurry, hurry. You you know, you're going to miss it. You know, the next flight to, to Chicago is going to be leaving soon. And I said, well, will my luggage get there? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and it was a different airline. And so I got on this other airline and I was like the last guy on the plane and poof, here I am going to Chicago and I'm waiting for my crate to come off and it wasn't there and so i'm going well you know where's the crate oh well you know we'll we'll find out you know we'll call this number you know so i had to go to the hotel and i called this number and they said oh well you know we gave that to the other airline and so i went to the other airline and called that number and they said oh no they never gave it to us we don't have that and so i'm going back and forth between these two airlines trying to figure out where my artwork is meanwhile There's, you know, it's a weekend convention. It's Friday. You know, I'm supposed to be setting up the art, but there's no art. And so I'm literally on the telephone the whole weekend trying to get the artwork to show up for Gene Wolfe's big weekend. And um, the other part that was kind of bad about that was that I used my underwear and socks as stuffing and so, I, you know, the whole weekend, I'm going, oh, my God, you know, this is getting bad. <laughs> Finally, I was literally hoarse. I couldn't talk to people because everybody's going, well, where's your art, Don? So I had to explain to them just after I get off the phone to the airline and then to the other airline. And so I, I was literally hoarse. My throat was killing me. My socks stunk. It was bad. And just on Sunday afternoon, like an hour before I was catching my flight out, the box arrived. You know, they were tearing down the art show, and I managed to get Jean over to the art show, and I opened up the box, took the paintings out of their, their wrapping, showed them to them, and then put them back in the box and went home.
0: Stressful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that was a frustrating little weekend for the artist. Yes. Yes, we've, we've had those. And I have a very nice book of Shadow of the Torturer that's signed by Gene Wolfe, and he actually wrote and underlined my favorite. So oh, of great. all the books that artists have done covers for, he liked mine the best.
1: This, this one that foreshadowed the Torturer, it's, it's positively iconic. It's very symmetrical. The clouds in the background, there was like an N.C. Wythe painting almost. And then I noticed that that as they progressed, each one got a little bit less symmetrical and a little bit more edgy, really. You have, I don't know what to to call it. I'm only familiar with it in comics called a Kirby Crackle. Jack Kirby would have these space uh, science fiction clouds going on. And you kind of got that going on in uh, Sword of the Lictor and in Citadel of the Autark. And once again, the coloring gets more diverse, less pastel, and they're less symmetrical. Was that a change in you or was that a change in the process?
2: The only thing I can say is, you know, I think what I was doing at the time was building on the intensity. And I'm, I'm saying this in hindsight because there were numerous other paintings done in between the time I was doing these. The first one I did in 1980, and the last one, yeah, Citadel Autark, 1982. So it was a period of two years, and, you know, in that period, I did probably 20 paintings or more. You know, I'm looking at them myself here in a row, and you can see that they are getting more complicated and more intense as they progress and I think that, you know, I was following the story. I mean, when you came to Citadel the autark, I mean, this character is eating somebody's brains and he's becoming the ruler of the world. So You know, that's pretty intense. And there's spaceships and battles going on with laser weapons. And it became a very intense situation. And I tried to build on that intensity. In the first book, it was sort of like it was setting the stage for what was to come. And yes, it's iconic. And then the second one became, this is a scene in the book where he has this jewel and he pulls it out of his boot. And all of a sudden it, you know, he was in a dark place with he didn't know what coming at him and this thing lights up and it blinds everybody and it's, it's going off like a flash bulb. And I thought that was a pretty intense scene to show what was going on. It was this illumination of the darkness, you know? and then you know this battle between a giant and this strange orb gave me the science fiction element in that book because in the third book it was tougher to find the the science fiction elements and a scene that would convey what the story was about so you're always trying to find something on a cover that's going to sell the book and what is going to do that and in the last book i was learning how to ride a horse and I was very impressed with uh, Frederick Remington's bronze, the Bronco Buster. So I very much used that as a model for Severian riding this horse. And, you know, I, I chose a black horse instead of a piebald because I really didn't want the black and white. I wanted a, an outline, a shape, a a dark shape and not a broken up shape so that you would see the character off in the distance. And I had a lot of trouble with that painting because i really tortured him i gave him blue skin and singed hair and i really did a job on him on the book cover and um it was the one painting that i hadn't sold and i had here for a number of years and i every now and again i would pull it out and do a frank frazetta where i would add something or change something and i decided what i wanted to do was have the lays weapon in his left hand to cast a blue light on his flesh tone rather than to make his flesh tone blue. And that change took a lot of trouble for me to do. And so I went through a lot of permutations before I got something I was happy with. So the final painting in its current sold state is how I present day imagined that character to look rather than how it appeared on the book cover.
1: All right. So the first time you met David Hartwell, was that when you were doing uh, Island Doctor, Death, and Other Stories?
2: He, David worked for Timescape and that was um, uh, Simon and Schuster, I believe, pocketbooks. And I, um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I would go into New York and I would show my portfolio to any book publisher there was. And I ended up getting that island of dr death story and i'm not sure that david wasn't aware of me because i was going to these world fantasy conventions i went to one in texas in like 1979 i think and i met oh harlan ellison and michael whalen and and donald grant and stephen king and all these wonderful people that I had heard about and I actually met them in the flesh in Texas of all places. It was the first time I was ever on an airplane and I brought my artwork with me and first time I was ever on an airplane and I'm traveling with all these paintings and it was an experience because I had no idea how to pack for it or anything like that. It was just a, a whole different kind of a thing and people were aware of what i was doing because of the art show at the world fantasy convention because a lot of publishers editors writers uh, it was a um it still is a hub of the horror, fantasy, science fiction marketplace, and a lot of professional people go there. There's a lot of meetings with, with editors, a lot of sometimes art directors go to the art show. The art show is a, it has been a really big thing, you know? And it was a place where you would see who was doing the best art in the paperback industry at the time. And uh, you would go to a publisher's party in the hotel room and they would have all their book flats all over the walls and you'd be sitting there schmoozing with authors whose books were on the wall and editors who were buying those authors and the art director that was buying your work. So it was a a really nice way to have them see the original artwork without having to go into New York City. You saw actually as many people as you would by going to 10 different publishers and more. So it was worth the trip. So after you did the Shadow of the Torturer cover, was it pretty
1: much understood that you do the rest of the covers or Did you have to resubmit?
2: Uh, The the nice thing about the paperback industry is if you do a good cover for a series and it's selling, you know, when it's released, they're going to come back to you because they want to continue the sales. You know, there's a saying, if the book sells, pat the author on the back. If it doesn't sell, blame the artist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well that's nice that you have all these series then that you've gotten to to work on like I mean you got Raymond Feist and
2: Yeah well you know thank the reading public for responding well to the artwork I mean I think that it's a marriage and a lot of times and and you can see it today in the self pub industry where the typography that is selected for the covers is so important. A bad type that just doesn't go with the story or with the artwork ruins it. It really makes it so that you're losing the impact of the artwork if the artwork is on the money for for the story. You know, my wife is an author and she writes edgy fantasy. It's not romance, it's hardcore fantasy, serious stuff. And whenever they put a, a typography on it, they go, oh, it's a woman because whoever does the type doesn't read the books. And so they do something flowery and it really doesn't suit. It's bad. And the name of your wife is? Jannie Wurtz. Fantasy author, Jenny Wurtz.
1: <laughs> Way to bury the lead, Don. <laughs> but
2: <laughs> anyway, uh, we were talking about typography. And so when you're dealing with a major publisher, they understand that type is really important and they hire typographers to do their type design. And these people are professional and they understand how to merge art. And this is where if anyone goes to the YouTube site and they see my sketches and things, uh, the reason I do very detailed sketches is for the typographer. You know, they can see what's coming and they can design the type for what is in front of them. And so if I keep the sketch and the finished artwork reasonably close together, then the typography won't do something really bizarre to the picture. And also it gives me some extra time because they don't have to go hurry up and give us the painting. You know, we got to get it into production. Well, production can already start if you have a really good color sketch for everyone involved to work with. Sometimes they've actually taken my color sketches and use them in their pre-sell of a book. Sometimes they have a catalog that comes out ahead of when the book is published and they will use sometimes a a color sketch to promote the book to show what's coming so that isn't just a blank page, you know, at least there's something there. And that gives me a little extra time because they're already pre-selling the book and they don't have to have the cover at that particular moment. Because sometimes things get delayed and sometimes the author is late and I don't have a manuscript or I have only a partial manuscript, you know, or they call me because an artist has backed out at the last minute because of, you know, a health problem or something like this. So schedules can be all wonker jawed. And so sometimes things get pushed. Did, as the
1: volumes of the book of the new sun got more and more attention, did the involvement of different people change?
2: Ah. Uh, I can't say. That's more of an internal decision. I can say that when the fourth book came out, they realized they had something pretty good because the publisher made a poster, and it had the Citadel of the Autarch big and the other three books below it, and it was a promotional poster for the entire series. So evidently, Gene's writing and my artwork were clicking because generally they don't spend money on a poster without having some kind of dollars to back it up. Oh, wow.
0: That's one I've never seen before. Now i got to go hunt eBay <laughs> and go see if I can find a copy. Uh,
2: they're, they're old, and I had a I had a bunch of them, and I, I lost them. You know, they were sort of like the poster that you had from the Book of the New Sun that I did as the omnibus for the book club, only they were a little bit bigger.
1: You know what? We have kind of your progression on Claw the Conciliator. you want to talk about...
2: Well, that was a different kind of procedure. You can see that there's a color sketch where he's holding up the claw and pretty much what's going on there. And what I would do is enlarge that with a projector or whatever to to the size that I'm going to do the final art. And in that case I did a charcoal drawing which separates the lights from the darks and provides enough detail for me so it becomes like photographic reference. And in this case, I was living in central Connecticut, a little town called Plainville. You know, that's where I, I grew up. And so I'm actually a plain villain <laughs> of the shows. Anyway, I knew someone who was a seamstress and she made a cape for me. And there was this wild uh, interior fabric I did as a lining. And so that became Severian's Cape. And so I had models wear this cape and I actually made a mask out of vinyl and I painted it so it looked like it had finger bones sewed onto it. And I had a model pose in these various positions to do these covers, except for the last cover, which I used Frederick Remington as an inspiration. So I get somebody who sort of looks like the character, and then I imagine him being the character, and I use the model as sort of a point of departure.
0: That's wonderful because I know sometimes people often comment on the, the cape because the, the decoration there is, is different from, you know, it's supposed to be just foliage and this blacker than black kind of thing. But I've always loved the pattern and to think that that's a real thing out in the world. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, I got it in my closet, you know, <laughs> you know every once in a while on Halloween, you know, it comes out. But anyway, it, one of my earliest book covers, I did a series for Lloyd Alexander's uh, Pirion Chronicles. And I actually took a pair of old long johns and dyed them black to make trues for medieval. And then I made, I bought a bunch of leather and I made leather lace up moccasins and I bought a bunch of white material and I actually hand sewed a shirt. You know, it got to the point I was making my costumes because there was nothing I could really find. And I didn't realize about, you know, rent fairs or anything back then. You know, again, I'm living in Plainville. So, you know, I was devising everything, coming up with, with costumes and finding, you know, I remember I used a um, a wooden window shade innard, okay? You take the window shade off and you have a piece of wood with a tag at either end. And I banged nails on either side and that became a sword. And I had somebody holding that you know, in one of my costumes and then I found sword reference and put it in there. So, you know, a lot of it was done with smoke and mirrors, sort of like a low budget film. Okay, let's talk about this, wow, strange and
1: wildly divergent cover for Citadel of the Autarch.
2: Well, uh, if you can see the progression, the first one is the line drawing, okay? And I generally work on a piece of Masonite. You know, when I buy it, it's Masonite. And after I've sealed it and put the gesso and and get it ready to paint, I call it Masonite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the the drawing that you're seeing is, is a piece of Masonite with my drawing transferred onto it, okay? So there's a graphite drawing actually on the board. And it, it was done as a transfer from a piece of tracing paper with a drawing the same size on it. In the upper right corner is the color sketch that I showed the publisher that was approved, which is the horse rearing with a guy with a sword and, uh, and a laser weapon. And you can see that, you know, it's not quite in proportion. It's it's giving them a good idea what I'm doing, but it's really not exactly the cover. There's not enough room for type. The horse is falling off. So I had to make a lot of adjustments, but the gist of what was going on is there and also the general colors. So what you're seeing is the drawing and you can see that there's a discoloration in the bottom. And what that is, is something called a liquid frisket, which is, it's sort of like a rubbery goo that you put down. And wherever that is, when you put water-based paints over that, the paints won't adhere to that area. So what I'm trying to do is separate that yellow from the intense white that's underneath it because I knew I wanted to do something different with that color and having yellow underneath it meant that it would affect the color and I didn't want it to. And I didn't want to lose that complicated line drawing as well when I did and and when you see the first rendition I call it the underpainting. It's all just uh, burnt sienna against the yellow. So it's two colors, two tones. And I rubbed off the rubber cement and that made it so that I could paint the horse without having to paint around that weird smoke that's in the foreground. And you can see on the next one where I added a darker brown or a black to the horse and to the figure, I'm adding another layer of paint. And then the final is when I added all the, the other colors and the spaceship and the orange and everything else. So it's sort of how I progress that painting. Some artists go from the upper right-hand corner to the lower left, and I'm not one of those. I have to work the whole thing all at the same time.
1: All right. Well, let's talk about the New Sun Omnibus cover. We have some great transition pictures here.
2: Yeah, well, I did one with a light background and trying to bring back the Shadow of the Torture cover and do sort of a homage to that. But then I got hooked into remembering how Gene Wolfe wrote that in days gone by, they actually brought the moon closer to Earth through technology and started to terraform it. And so I decided to make the moon much bigger in the sky and suggest very subtly little bits of green spots on the moon to show that this is this is earth but it's definitely a changed earth and i wanted to have more technology so you know i wanted to have laser lights going off and castles that really weren't castles and castles in the background that actually had torches on the outside so it was like this futuristic cityscape but you know there were torches lighting it up which seemed to me was a, a good way to show what gene Wolfe was talking about like stephen king said the world moved on
0: you know that's great and one thing i had never really paid attention to until just now is that that's the only one where the sun shows up since the the title is book of the new sun but that's really yes the only one where you see it and i love that it's at the bottom <laughs> it's not way high in the sky that that the fact that it's setting or rising one of those is perfect
2: cool Well, um, you know that one to me is is my favorite because it I think it was truest to the character. I mean, I I read the books. How do I explain this? It was like I was reading them as they came to me. And with the Omnibus, I was able to read all of them at the same time and get a feeling for the entire scope. And that was sort of unique for me in doing you know, that painting.
0: And also you changed, it looks like in one of an earlier version, he's holding the sword ready. And then in the final version, it's down. Do you remember why you decided that change?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Figured it'd be a while back, but thought I'd ask.
2: Um, it, it may have been, you know, like a, a typography situation too. I don't know. You know, I, it,
0: it. I, I agree with the final version.
2: You know, I'm looking at it now going, maybe I should have had the sword up. I don't know.
0: No, I think having it down like that is much more it's I mean, Severian's a thoughtful contemplative guy mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah, that seems to fit.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean he, you know, the sword was a symbol more than it was really something, you know, he wasn't like Conan the barbarian hacking people every time he turned around. It was a symbol of his station, so to speak.
1: And then after that, you've since published a book of watercolors, which include alternate watercolor covers for the the, the four books.
2: Well, they're not covers. What these are, are people have said, oh, Don, I got the Gene Wolfe book in hardcover. Could you do a drawing on the inside for me? Oh. And so these are called remarks. And I've probably done 500 of these if you could imagine, for various Stephen King titles I've done. And uh, someone wanted me to do Severian for the books. And one of the collectors wanted me to do one for each of their books. So there's one for Shadow the Torturer, Citadel the Autarch, Claw the Conciliator, and Sword of the Lictor. And those were actually done for the book. And then there's one that I actually did for someone, and it is for Citadel the Autarch, and he wanted me to do it as as a watercolor on watercolor paper, not in the book. And I really enjoyed that because I was able to use watercolor paper and not the cheesy stuff that they publish in bound books. It's a frustration for me to try to you know I want to do a really nice reminiscence of what's going on in color, and the paper of the book just won't let me. Do what i want so i have to be really careful so that you know, i don't destroy the paper on somebody's book so i charge a lot for these because i'm being really careful that of somebody else's property it's not like you know well i can toss this out and start again on another piece of paper this is somebody's first edition and they don't want me to trash it well yeah i think if i did this i would just put some watercolor paper inside the book and say hey use that yeah, well, you know, I actually did something like that for someone very recently, and FedEx almost lost them, damn it, but they found them. But I did 2001 A Space Odyssey and 3001 A Space Odyssey for Martha C. Clarke, and this guy is having them rebound, and his books are you know, just old or cheesy or whatever, and he's going to a bookbinder, and he had me do it on a heavier paper that was still able to be stitched into his book. So I'm, I actually sent pieces of Bristol paper with the artwork on it to the book binder and that art is being bound into his books. Has
1: anyone ever had you do one of Severian and the Elzaba
2: No. Oh. <laughs> that was sort of a what I think is a funny story, but maybe not. But uh, Stephen King... I illustrated several of his books way back when I was one of the artists that did the talisman one of the paintings inside the talisman there were like eight different artists that did artwork for that for the Donald M. Grant edition and then I did desperation for the Donald M. Grant edition and then I did the shining for the cemetery dance edition and then I did recently the stand for PS publication in England And that was kind of creepy because, you know, it's an airborne virus that takes out the population. And I did it just before we had an airborne virus taking out the population. But anyway, when I did Desperation, Stephen King set up something called the Haven Foundation, which was to benefit authors that, He said that there were people in the industry that are giving us their all and writing wonderful and and narrating and, and doing artwork and they're doing it for the love of it and they just aren't making enough money to make ends meet if there's an emergency. And so he set up an emergency fund for authors that ended up getting sick or having a financial crisis and he was one of the managing directors of the Haven Foundation and uh, his fans would do an ebay auction and they would provide books and various artists would do artwork in the books and that would drive up the price and they would have an ebay auction and i was doing that and people had me do desperation and do a painting in it and i got kind of excited and i put too much water on the page and the grant edition of desperation the pages weren't very robust and so I was really concerned because I really made a mess of this one page and it bled onto the page behind it and it kind of stained that one too. And it and I, and I I got some paint in the upper corner and I'm going, oh, I ruined this book. I'm going to have to take one of the copies that I had that the publisher gave me and substitute it and keep this one that I ruined, you know, for the auction. And my dear wife said, it's a horror novel. And I went ding okay so i just added like a lot of watercolor blood stains to the mess that i made of the book and it really and and then i tore into the pages we actually had and a scene in the book a vulture is tearing at this one guy's hair and really mangling him and we have a petrified crow claw. And so I literally went at the book with a crow claw and ripped some of the pages, you know, and, and then added blood stains to the rips and stuff. And and that thing sold like you couldn't believe on this auction. You know, I actually made more money by destroying the book than I did if I had replaced it with a pristine copy with a nice drawing in it.
1: <laughs> okay. The Donmates official webpage. It's Paravia, P A R A V I A dot com.
2: It's actually Paravia. Paravia. But Paravia is uh, the Spanish version. And Paravia is actually a continent in my wife's major book series. And we thought that, you know, we'd go continental with our website. Well, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Um, a word of sort of warning and that is that I share the website with my wife. Since we're married, she's an artist and an author, and she does all her own book covers, which is pretty incredible. She uh, she just renovated her website, and we're in the process now of renovating our studio shop, our web store, and I will be renovating my part of the website shortly. So it, it's working. It's just a work in progress, and I urge people to go to my wife's website because it's really cool. She really did some cool things with it.
1: And if they just go to the base at paravia.com, they'll
2: have the option of going to either yours or Jannie Wurtz's. And like I said, my wife is one of the very few... I think she's probably one of the only women working today that actually does her own book covers writing major a major fantasy series. Oh, wonderful. Which is very cool. <laughs> pretty unique to begin with. And her fantasy series is very much in keeping with Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun because you can't skim it. I mean, Gene wrote that so that, you know, you have to pay attention. There's stuff going on there that is percolating. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's there's a depth to his writing in those books. And that's definitely what my wife is writing in her Wars of Light and Shadow series. So if you like that kind of depth in reading, then you might enjoy her wars of light and shadow series it's not for everybody there's so many people don't like her writing because they skim and you really have to pay attention to what she's writing in those books and she's literally right now on the second half of the very last volume in an 11-book series. Robert Jordan wrote a huge series, but he kind of passed away before he mm-hmm. finished it. Yeah. And George Martin is sort of, we don't know what's going to happen with his, but Janny is literally finishing up a huge 11-book monster, so that's, that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's the best advertisement you could have is that it's done. And she's still alive.
1: Yeah, someone said that George R. 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 Martin says people are afraid that you're going to die before you
2: finish your series, and he said, "Do you know how insulting that is?" F you. Trust me. So many people said, I'm not going to read these books until, you know, because she's going to die on me.
0: People joked about Robert Jordan. And sure enough, that happened.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I remember, you know, I met Robert. I forget his real name, but, you know, they were so worried about him because he, he was distracted that they literally put him in a hotel room to finish writing the later books in the series because he was just not getting the work done in any kind of a way that they wanted. And so they literally put him up in a hotel room so he would not have distractions and be able to focus on getting the work done, (laughs) which is, you know, bizarre in itself. But he he was selling major just like Martin. And in fact, there's an odd thing. If you find the first edition of A Game of Thrones by HarperCollins UK on the back cover Of the slipcase is a quote by my wife who was asked to quote for that way back before it was big. Yes. You know, if you're curious, there are two books, and one of them is my favorite, and that one is called To Ride Hell's Chasm. It's a one off, it's it's a wonderful adventure story, and it takes place in like five days. It's really fast moving, starts slow, moves fast. Every character has authority in the book. There's no she's a very tight writer and she delivers like Spielberg at the end of a book so and her wars of light and shadow are done so that they're progressive but there's an ending point after every volume so it's not like she she hates cliffhangers and another book that she wrote that is mm. a really good one if you want to try her work is uh, master of white storm And it starts out a little bit like Robert E. Howard, where, you know, it's almost like a short Mm -hmm. story. There's an adventure in each chapter. And as the story builds, it gets deeper and deeper, and you get deeper into this guy's personality and character. And you realize that there's a lot going on in there that isn't on the surface. Great.
0: No, I remember I read the books that she did with Raymond Feist. I'd read the Empire books. yes, And one was it Stormwarden, I think, one of her yes. early books I rem- yes, I'd read before.
2: Yes. They're about to be re-released in ebooks with Open Roads. But the Empire and this is one of the problems that she's encountered is that so many people have read those Empire books and love them and they go on to her writing, and they find that they're falling off a steep cliff because her books are much more dense than those books. They read quicker. You can bounce along on those books. Her books, even I, who's used to her writing, have to reread the first chapter just to get into what she's doing. Because it's that dense, she doesn't waste a word, and she's very specific. There are librarians that go, "Wow, I have to go to the dictionary to find out what meaning she's using to get the inflection that she's putting into this particular." You know, so they're they're very sophisticated books, and uh, they're made. Uh oh, hopefully she's going to get that. <laughs> they're made for. Um, A a discerning reader. It's not for everybody. Complicated,
0: sophisticated work for a Gene Wolfe audience. That's a selling point, not a hindrance. Hopefully that'll make people go for it.
2: Yes. Well, that's one of the things that frustrates her a bit is that so many people point to Gene Wolfe going, wow, you know, I got to really work to get all his everything he put in this. And it's the same with her books, only they aren't willing to do it. You know, they've read The the Empire and they go, nah, this isn't for me. And unfortunately, her publisher keeps marketing her books to the Raymond Feist audience. And he and she don't write for the same readers. They That's what they do because he's selling to an audience. And because <laughs> they collaborated, of course, she's going to sell to the same audience. And it's not true. And she's been fighting that for like 20 years. Well, I'm sold. So what have you been up to since then? Uh, what, since with the Gene Wolves? Actually, um, the publishing industry has gone through some major changes. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but back in the days, you know, when I was doing these covers, there were a lot of publishers. There were, you know, I mean, we had Pocket books, which was Simon and & Schuster, and they had several different imprints. And then there was Del Rey books, and Simon and & Schuster, and Random House, and Ace books, and Daw books, and Penguin books, and Doubleday. And there was just a herd of books. And I had maybe 20 art directors that I could go into New York and show my portfolio to, And what happened was corporations decided that they were going to buy up book publishers to go along with the movie industry that they bought up. So you had people like Time Warner and Sony and Bertelsmann. And so, you know, what ended up happening was there were these mergers. And now there are only like five or maybe four major book publishers. So all of a sudden, the musical chairs went from you had all these job opportunities to five. And then they decided that, well, we really don't need artwork to sell books. We can use digital imagery or just, I mean, Stephen King doesn't need a artwork. All he needs is his name on it and the title. And they were going for major bestsellers and they were going for new authors and the mid list which was the bread and butter back when i was doing books died you know i mean so many authors have gone by the wayside because you know they wrote and they wrote constantly but there were fewer and fewer places to write for because of all these mergers and also there's something called the harvard business model which said that you know in the old days 10 percent profit was perfectly reasonable And if you had all these books out there, that 10% added up, but Harvard business model said, no, 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 you got to make 20%. And all of a sudden the books that weren't cutting that 20% grade in the mid list were dropped. And, you know, a lot of books got orphaned because you would have a merger. And whenever there was a merger, you would have, well, we got two art directors now. We don't need two art directors. We got, we're only publishing so many titles so we can get rid of half of our list. And so everything shrunk and, and including artists to do the covers, you know, and then added to that, you have uh, digital imaging, which is a lot cheaper than paying an artist to just actually paint something. Now, there are still publishers that are hiring artists like myself, and two of them that come to mind are Daw Books, which were in business back when I was, I did a number of covers for them, and uh, Bain Books, and I've done a few covers recently for Bane Books, and they like, you know, the old-timey, let's paint a cover. I mean, they do some digital, but they still like painted covers. And so, you know, a lot of artists that were doing book covers have gone either into the fine art market or have gone digital or have left the field entirely.
1: Yeah. It's as someone who I just much prefer to have physical media, those covers, I love the stuff inside, but the covers
2: are like having art that you can hold in your hand, especially if a cover really augments the book. You know, there's so many times where people would buy a book by its cover and they're disappointed because the book doesn't really deliver. And this is what I really enjoyed about the Frank Frazetta covers and back when the Doc Savage, James Bama covers, the John Berkey covers. When you got a Berkey science fiction cover, it was like he put such an atmosphere to those covers that you really wanted to find out what was going on in there that would create such dynamic inventive spacecraft and scenarios and it was just so intriguing and that was very much what hooked me into doing covers being able to read the story and say okay what how do i make this come alive in an image that that to me is is part of the the mystique of doing this it's like how do i make this character come alive how can this scene become something that i can visualize so what's the future of Uh, Actually, Small Press is doing something that mass market can't do, and it's for the book collector market. There's a publisher out there now, Grim Oak Press, and they've done a number of things for them, and they're actually having me do interior illustrations along with the covers. And they're actually reusing some of the covers that I've done for Raymond Feist's Empire series, and I'm doing black and white interior art to augment them. And the Stephen King work that I did was for small press where they're catering to a book collector market where they don't want the cheesy mass market books that fall apart. They want to have Stephen King, something that they could keep forever on their bookshelves where you have Library of Congress paper quality that doesn't go bad, and you have uh, slip editions and book binding that was sewn instead of glued. And so people that really care about books have a place where they can continue having quality books, and small press is filling that niche. And there's enough of a profit in there with certain authors that they're able to hire artists to to actually illustrate the books even with color interior illustrations. They've done that for some of the Robert E. Howard Conan books and and other publications. So there's a future there where the book industry is going back to the old days of NC Wyeth doing the Scribner classics. Well that's terrific. Thank you so much, Don. And this was so great. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed having me as your guest. Thanks. It was pleasurable and I'm looking forward to hearing what you've done to my voice and seeing how you presented my pictures. <laughs> <laughs> You'll sound like Ricardo Monaco. <laughs> Wonderful. I would like that very much. On the front, cover up my heart. Draw on the front, cover up my heart.